One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. Two years ago this month, the first cases of COVID-19 were reported in the United States. Most of us at the time were busily going about our business, completely unaware of the fact that by March 2020, our lives and those of just about everyone on Earth would be transformed. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew, wrote acclaimed author and activist Arundhati Roy just a few weeks into the shutdown. Quote, this pandemic is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next, close quote. We may not have had a choice about stepping through that portal, Roy observed, but we do have a choice about what to create and fight for on the other side. So now, two years on, What have we carried with us through this unanticipated portal and what are we building anew? If our goal is a better society, a world that is kinder, more sustainable, just and free, how are we doing and what do we do now? And what role do writers, literature and language itself play in helping us find our way? Today, I'm exploring all this and more with somebody I love to have on this program, Arundhati Roy, one of the world's most beautifully incisive and moving political writers and novelists, author of The God of Small Things and The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, as well as numerous essays on human rights, environmental justice, and global capitalism. This spring, the second edition of her book of essays, Azadi, Freedom Fascism Fiction, will be out from Haymarket Books. She's joining us now from her home in New Delhi, India. Arundhati, welcome back to The Laura Flanders Show. We're so glad to have you. Thank you, Laura. It's so lovely to see you. So I feel as if I, anyway, am a kind of wannabe believer in the glass half full in a world that feels like it's teetering on the brink of something really dreadful. Um, So I come to you (laughs) as somebody who I think often finds herself in a similar position um, to ask you where you think we're at. How are we doing? Oh, well, you know, um, it's hard to say. If you had asked me this uh, even just a week ago, I think I might have been more pessimistic because like most people, I even though, you know, one was not locked down, somehow uh, I was locked out of, of the life that I usually lead, which is to travel to to places in India where, the language and the conversations are so different from those that are reproduced in the mainstream media, you know? And uh, so last week, I mean, I just came back yesterday, in fact, from such a journey after, after two and a half years, uh, I was traveling in uh, this huge state of Uttar Pradesh where Modi's kitchen of poisonous chemistry is situated, where his constituency, uh, the, the city of Banaras, now called Varanasi. And, and I went there with great trepidation, you know, because of what we read and hear. When I traveled and when I uh, went to villages and when I met people, I realized that the India that all of us have mourned is actually still alive. You know, 
uh, still full of complexity and somehow stubbornly refusing this narrative of it's all over, you know, the BJP is here forever, fascists everywhere are ruling. Um, you know, the, the, the story was, was more complex and there was so many beautiful things of people who are being made to quarrel and fight and hate and kill each other, just refusing. I don't know what's going to happen. There's an election there next month, but still just to see that that was alive was wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad you answered in that way. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for traveling. I look forward to doing it too. We just went through January 6th being remembered in this country. And I remember that you wrote at that time, watching from where you were, you compared your own government to ours by saying where you are, the loonies, the crazies had already taken over the capital. Can you talk a bit more about the political state of things in India that I think people here are so unaware of? Well, uh, as you know, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi belongs to, uh, has belonged for most of his adult life since he was a, a teenager to a, a proto-fascist organization called the RSS, which believes that India should be a Hindu nation, and that everyone else, all minorities and other religions should live as minorities with fewer rights. So uh, they, they have, of course, all their, their founding ideologues have praised Hitler, have praised Mussolini, have referred to the Muslims of India who, who number almost 200 million as, as the Jews of Germany, as equivalent to the Jews of Germany. Uh, Modi actually made his political debut on, on, on the mainstream stage as the appointed chief minister, not elected chief minister of Gujarat in uh, 2001. And very soon after that was chief minister while there was a massacre of Muslims in the streets and villages of Gujarat, slaughter, rape, pillaging, uh, beating to death, stabbing to death. Uh, you know, um, burning the bodies till the grave, uh, till they could not be identified. But that was the basis on which he became known as Hindu Hide Samrat, the emperor of Hindu hearts. And since then, uh, this hatred, these bodies, these false flag attacks have, there's been a litany of them that has led him, of course, to become the prime minister. Uh, just two weeks ago, because there are elections all over India and because the economic status has nosedived, mm. unlike in Nazi Germany where, the, where Germany was economically revived, here we were just pushed into a crevasse. And therefore, you're seeing the polarization more. And you saw uh, two meetings of Hindu nationalists in a city called Haridwar and then in Delhi openly calling for the genocide of Muslims, for the killing of Christians. There have been hundreds of attacks on Christian churches over Christmas, statues of Jesus vandalized, uh, you know, churches broken into, people beaten up. Uh, and of course, uh, as you know, uh, Muslims are regularly lynched on the streets. There's a social boycott of uh, Muslim businesses in many places. Um, now you have the cool, you know, uh, maybe educated class of Indian 
uh, Hindu nationalist who is, uh, you know, um, emulating the American alt-right uh, and again, openly calling for violence against Dalits, against Muslims, against Christians, against Adivasis. All of this is being allowed to prosper and um, multiply mm. under the benign gaze of Modi. And so, the world. And, and Kashmir, that, that beautiful territory contested by three nuclear powers, India, Pakistan and China. So in 2019, uh, Kashmir lost its constitutionally guaranteed special status for almost a year. Uh, you know, thousands of Kashmiris, including former chief ministers and, and sitting chief ministers were, were put into jail. Uh, it became a union territory without, uh, you know, uh, representation now at the moment ruled by a governor who takes his orders from New Delhi. It, uh, it had an internet and uh, communication shutdown for almost a year. And now in Kashmir, as well as all over India, you're seeing, uh, you know, the open sort of definition of uh, any dissident intellectuals, professors, lawyers, journalists are being called uh, terrorists, are being put into jail under a law which no democracy could have called the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, which allows you to hold people without telling them even what mm. charges they are being held against for years. You talk about one party democracy without accountability. And one of the reasons I'm asking you to repeat, and I'm apologetic, so much of what we should know already in this country about what's happening in India, um, is because I believe it is such an important lesson in what is possible with all the information technology that we have, with all the media that we supposedly have, the conversation about could it happen here <laughs> continues in this country, um, which is not so different from yours, large, contested, challenging, powerful. In terms of, its, in terms of the situation here, no, go ahead. How would you want to respond? No, I uh, I read a lot about uh, what's happening there. I follow it closely and I'm always taken aback by how similar it is in some ways, uh, in some ways, different in other ways, you know, because this organization that I spoke of, the RSS, it has existed since 1925. It's very organized. It has its own militias. It has hundreds of thousands of uh, branches all over India and so on. Yet in the U.S., as we know, the right wing is, 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 uh, is the side of the argument that owns the weapons. And, uh, uh, and uh, there has been uh, far from, uh, you know, uh, uh, reconciliation. This January 6th event is, has, has uh, led us to see that America too is on the brink of something dreadful. And, and you see how uh, the I mean, I say the, the one big difference is that in, in the US, the mainstream media uh, was not entirely behind Trump and therefore became an enemy of Trump. It was with the corporates, of course, but not with Trump. But uh, in India, the mainstream media, I'd say 
you know, 99% mm. of it is completely in support of this project, as are the major corporations so far. So, uh, but but yes, the, the dismantling, the systematic dismantling of the institutions of democracy. In India, what you see is a, a, a huge sort of jurisprudence uh, many, many sophisticated laws uh, that have been um, formulated over so many years. But the truth is that how that law is applied depends on who you are, mm. what, what religion, what caste, what gender, what class. So, 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 so there isn't a foundation now. It's all sand, you know, uh, and, and, and you see systematically how uh, they are working at dismantling democracy and creating a situation where you have the shell of elections, mm. but those elections can only be fought by people who have money. Uh, the opposition has been uh, devastated by Modi's sudden demonetization policy and so on. But as I said, when I traveled places, <laughs> I found that, you know, at some point, uh, people, uh, you know, there were moments when I was traveling with another friend and she and I were, would be supported by hostile villagers who thought we were the mainstream media, you know, and, and they know, they all know the deal now with the mainstream media. Mm. So when they realized that we were not then they they cooled off, you know, because I, I wish uh, this experience didn't sound so familiar. Um, <laughs> let me come to that question that you raised then in your book, um, even in its title, freedom, a, a word that has so many meanings. We hear freedom talked about in in Kashmir, in Kashmir, of course, about from people longing to be free um, here, um, people longing to be free from mosque mandates, women longing to be free from mandatory um, motherhood. Um, you write that the coronavirus brought us another sort of more terrible understanding of freedom. Quote, the free virus that has made nonsense of international borders, incarcerated whole populations and brought the modern world to a halt like nothing else ever could. Which of these many meanings of freedom are you thinking about in your new collection, Azadi? All of them, all <laughs> of them, you know, because there are essays on uh, Kashmir and what Azadi means to them and where that word Azadi has come from and where the slogans and chants have come from, how that chant of Kashmiri freedom then got, uh, then got uh, taken over by uh, huge groups of students protesting against the citizenship law that was passed um, in uh, 2020. You know, when um, basically it's called the Citizenship Amendment Act, coupled with what was known as the National Register of Citizens, which basically required citizens to produce a mandated set of documents mandated by the government to prove that they were citizens. Last, last this happened in 1930s Germany, Nuremberg, you know? And so you had a citizenship law, which was not about 
refugees and whether or not they could apply for citizenship, but a refugee manufacturing law aimed against Muslims. But uh, of course, the first uh, experiments were in the northeastern state of Assam, where now you have two million people who are off the citizenship register and are therefore people without rights. So the freedom you would have us aim for, move towards, lift up, pursue? Well, I think it's a very, um, very interesting idea of where does, uh, you know, where do people act as a community and stop thinking of freedoms as entirely individual. In In a society here where people are crushed because they belong to a particular community, you know? So how do we look at these complexities yeah. and how do we how do we basically look at democracies that are that mean nothing if they are not based on a constitution that is not not based on a set of laws that applies to everybody it's but- interesting to hear you i think you know in this country where also in a sense calling for a new registry of who gets to be a citizen, meaning a person here, a a resident, an American, uh, um, part of our democracy. And a lot of people, uh, not just January 6th, but all over the country have been talking about, you know, corruption and our government elections being stolen and there's no evidence, but there's a deep feeling fueled by the right that the wrong people are claiming a part of this country. Um, and it's it's not being implemented in the in the way that you're describing, but the feeling I think is the same. So I really want you to talk more about the places and examples where you see people. I think you say somewhere f- turning and as you know turning. You say um, nothing makes this regime happier than when we seal ourselves into silos, into little tanks in which we splash around angrily each for ourselves or our communities, never seeing the big picture. It's only when we breach the banks of our designated tanks that we can turn into a river and flow as an unstoppable current. Um, Talk more about how do people do that when they are so put against each other? Well, I I just saw that when I (laughs) This, uh, when I went to this village, uh, a, a little village in, in a district called Ghazipur in uh, UP, you know, as I walked into this old uh, Haveli, which is the word for an, uh, a, a traditional house, I thought there's something about this place which doesn't look like what's happening in the outside world. And then I started to speak to the gr- small group of people that was gathered there. And this is in a state, as I said, where, where you know, people are calling for the genocide of Muslims, the genocide of Christians, the, the, the crushing in some ways of Dalits. They're not calling for that, but that is the, the, the texture of everyday life. And here you saw a group of people who were Dalit, who were all kinds of other castes, Brahmin, then, and, and the main politician was a Muslim and he and his family had been voted to power many times, although the Muslims are a minority there, you know, so it wasn't that he was standing from some Muslim constituency as a Muslim. And you saw uh, 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 the possibility of a kind of conversation where you're talking about justice for for everybody. 
not for just because everybody realizes you know that on their own they will only get crushed or they will only be used to be heard and then crushed after the election you know so people are beginning to understand that even this is a project yeah. you know um and it has long been a project of um let me say um the conversation in the us like people like me who who don't live there and who have never lived there uh often laugh at what americans think of as the left because that's not what we think of as the left you know we 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 think of actual uh conversations about justice whereas the left here too has failed to understand caste to understand that that has to be a part of how you look at what you consider to be fair in a world where obviously wealth is falling into fewer and fewer hands and unless you understand all of that uh you know you are only going to be used we i hear words justice human rights equality equity even freedom we talked about it a little almost not quite but almost losing their meaning here we talk the words and maybe this is a distinction between our left progressive and 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 yours there's a lot of talking and not a lot of walking not a lot of feeding people caring for people creating if you will what some people used to call liberated zones um do we need new words do we need new concepts for our 21st century era you said we're leaving the one that we didn't know very well and moving into a new one do we need new language i think so i think so i think we do and i think we we need to be able to uh i think the main thing is that categories are useful you know all kinds of categories are useful to understand and structure a way of seeing but we must understand that those categories are not watertight we mustn't uh, you know walk and jump into our own boxes and lock them up and put a ribbon around ourselves and say that you know um nobody can come in and no nobody can go out because those categories must be osmotic yeah pass things can pass through the borders pass through the barriers it reminds me a little of the conversation that um we had about the film disclosure and the whole phenomenon of transgender politics is about the what is so exciting to many of us is the trans part the idea that there's mutability even in our in our bodies and certainly in our identities it's like it's like in uh, i mean one of the main characters in the ministry of utmost happiness you know she is a uh, transgender and she gets caught up she's a shia muslim from old delhi who gets caught up in the massacre in gujarat in 2002 and she gets caught up in it because she's a muslim but she uh, uh, is allowed to live because for them the killers to kill who they think of as hijras is uh, unlucky you know so which identity <laughs> saves you which identity uh, puts you in danger you know all these things are that's what i mean you know like at mm. which point are you uh uh i are you forefronting or is someone else fronting for you who you are 
And when do you inhabit that de definition? And you must do it carefully because it can be used against you. I really encourage people to check out the essays in Azadi. Um, you cover so much territory uh, and it's so beautifully written. And, and it, you talk about language and literature and you often refer to the characters who are living in your house with you right now, many of whom end up in your novels. Are there characters living in your house with you right now? Well, right now they're walking in the world. So the ones who begin to live with me are when the novel is you know, still to be published. But right now, um, yeah, right now uh, as a writer, I, I feel a little bit marooned, you know, because my way of working is to walk, yeah. you know, to walk in the world and to, to hear things and understand things which, which I don't hear mm -hmm. uh, in the chatter on the internet or in the mainstream media, you know? I, I so relate. And I think one of because the there's challenges- such a huge, There's <laughs> such a huge world that's outside of that. Whereas it, uh, you begin to think that this is the only universe there is, you know, the digi digital universe and so on, which is not true. Well, that brings me back to the pandemic um, and that portal. Because uh, I think it's true. I, I, I feel it too. Like, even when I leave this place and go to do a story that's frightening or, you know, shows the obstacles people are up against, there is always that imagination outside of the walls of our media that you just, that doesn't get a chance to penetrate. And, and when you can feel it in your body, it makes such a difference to your sense of possibility. That portal, did we remake some things anew or did we simply allow... Um, others to drag through their old dead carcasses. Yeah, I think we're still uh, we're still uh, making our way through it. You know, I I don't think we have fully understood what has happened to us, and I think that you know even when you when I look at the the rage of the American right or of the Indian right, I I think that there are so many that rage is also coming from a place where people have felt, um, you know, not looked at, left behind, not thought about. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about white supremacy, you know, but I'm talking about the people at the bottom who have lost jobs, who are watching, uh, you know, the slick corporate world just um, gather the wealth and suck it out of the rivers and the forests and the banks. And um, sometimes that rage is real, but it's misdirected or purposely misdirected uh, by those same people, you know? So how do you communicate? What is the engine that is causing this great inequality that is using racism, that is using sexism and genderism and casteism? What is that engine that keeps certain people safe, whatever the fuck is going on, you know? And what is it? I'd say that it's, it's uh, corporate capitalism, you know? I would say that. And I would say that unless you look at that too, you know, which is not to say that the, uh, that the answer is, you know, Maoism or uh, Soviet communism. I'm not saying that, but to not understand the cause of the problem, 
whether it's climate change, whether it's this uh, massive inequality all over the world, and 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 the greater the inequality, the greater the unrest, the greater the police states that we are faced with, the greater the surveillance, the greater the gathering of information. And then, you know, why would you not be suspicious when you, you know the racket of pharmaceutical companies, you know the racket of the Gates Foundation, you know how wealthy they are becoming, you know? It, 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 it's not to say that, uh, it's not to say that science or medicine or the vaccine are terrible, but why are they owned like this? When did we last yeah. start, start talking about vaccines in brand names, you know? We could do a whole nother program about India and the vaccine, and I hope that we can, um, but we need to close. And I have to tell you, we've been living for far too long probably on, on your promise that another world is not only possible, but on a quiet day, you can hear her breathing. So in a moment where breath seems to have become so important and so critical and in short supply in many places, um, how is she doing? Can you still hear her breathing? Well, uh, it's difficult, you know, it's difficult. And the point is that, you, you know, it, I would be um, somewhat ridiculous if I was still, you know, bright and hopeful and hadn't taken many hits like all of us have, you know. All I can say, uh, all I can say is that whether we win or lose, we're going to keep you know, seeing these things, telling these stories, listening for that other little rhythm of somebody else breathing, you know, it's never, it's never, it's never going to stop. Uh, even if, uh, even if you say that there's no hope, or there is hope, the point is that some of us are going to do what we're going to do, and <laughs> go down on this side, you know, if we have to go down. We are. This is what we do. And how else would you want to spend your life, even if these are our last moments? <laughs> Let me ask you a little bit more about um, this portal and what you were hoping versus what you've seen. Can you talk a bit about where you have felt the world being invented anew and where not? Well, I think uh, most of the inventing has come from quarters that I am very suspicious of, you know, and I, I found, uh, I found that when the first lockdown happened, the, the thing that occurred to me was, I don't think there's been a moment in history when the entire human population has been locked down in this way, just all at once. In India, it was like four hours notice for one point three, eight billion of us, you know, you can't go out, you can't open your, <laughs> it was terrifying what happened to people. And after that, that increasing sense of data collection of surveillance, you know, it had already started in India with uh, things like demonetization and trying to move to, to uh, digital transactions, which create, which broke the back of the economy. Uh, with a unique ID, which was, again, a very um, a, a kind of data mining exercise. Then it moved into the vaccines, 
where we all have now vaccine certificates with Prime Minister Modi's face on it. Uh, you have uh, various attempts at making these apps which uh, track you always. I was in Korea recently and, you know, it's just now human beings are just, uh, uh, you know, completely watched all the time. And uh, so we, and then we had uh, this whole moment where so many activists and politicians had uh, had Pegasus in, installed on their phones, you know, where it was not even just surveillance, it was just completely taking over data. You have you had moments of uh, reports of some of the best academics, activists, lawyers who are in prison right now, and their computers have been uh, have been sent to forensic labs, and it has been found that they you know they had fake letters and fake stuff placed in the but they're still in jail so there's a and then there's the sort of uh, i think the drug of whatever netflix and amazon prime and all of us are sitting there looking at each other's reality and forgetting about our own you know so um i think the whole world has been whipped into a kind of obedience. I know I'm trying to sound, I'm sounding like uh, some crazed uh, right winger in the US, but I don't mean it in that way. I just mean that we slowly have to learn to be disobedient again, you know? The role that artists and writers play in that? Well, I guess uh, that would be uh, crucial in terms of trying to remember that there is a world outside of, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, a world that is slowly falling away, you know, a world that uh, cannot be uh, understood just um, just by gathering comments from everywhere but a world that needs to be listened to uh, very carefully. Mm -hmm. One of the things we hear here a lot is talk about um, rupture, about civil war, um, about sort of secession or breaking apart of this big country of the United States. And, and you talk something about that also in your essays about India. What do you make of that conversation? Is that the conversation we need to be having right now? Well, I, I don't know whether when people talk about civil war in the US, they're actually talking about a territorial war or a war where sections of geography fight other sections. I think it's more like a kind of unrest and insurrection where what happened on January 6th is, is enacted in all kinds of other spaces where people turn on each other, where people, gangs and groups, I mean, you know, almost like civil society and law and order breaks down and people are against people in streets. And, you know, that I think is, is, is what they mean when they talk about it. Um, I, I don't know, you know, how that is going to be in the US. In India, I fear more the, you know, like what 
what is talked about here is is uh, uh, you know genocidal language which eventually dehumanizes whole populations and then you already see this kind of uh, best well uh, let me not use the word bestial but violence of a kind which isn't just about killing but it's much more than killing it's it's show killing it's put on youtube it's applauded mm. and if that is allowed i mean right now just that talk is enough to win votes but at what point can you what point are you going to lose control of those people and at what point is it going to really happen you know and then uh, it's going to be something terrible you know to watch meanwhile we have the climate clock ticking um and another line I remember from your essays is uh, American geography is on notice. It's not just the divisions we have on the surface of the earth, but the earth itself rebelling against how we've been using it and abusing it. Um, last time you and I talked in person, well, maybe not the last time, but one of the times we talked in person, um, I remember you had just come back from walking with the comrades um, resistors, indigenous resistors to environmental destruction of forests and dam resistors. How are they doing? How are they? How's that face of that struggle? Well, the dam has been built and many more dams are being built. You know, sometimes I, you know, I look at the commentary on climate change and it looks as if, you know, young uh, people in Europe and America sort of discovered this battle where people have been fighting it for years you know and sort of paying with the best years of their lives Um, but at that time nobody was with them you know Um, but yeah they are there's there's a lot of uh, bloodshed happening in the forests you know and um, so so when the world is so polarized and so shattered, climate change obviously calls for, for uh, you know, coordinated actions. So you hear even the prime minister of India, he could go to uh, Glasgow or wherever he has to go and make statements which sound as if India is uh, really committed to uh, you know the battle against climate change yeah. and then come back here and and I, I I can't think of one single project that has been stopped because it's environmentally de- you know creating environmental degradation or destroying rivers or destroying forests and mm-hmm. ecosystems not one I mean massive roads through the Himalayas for you know the army, vehicles to go despite the fact there'd be landslides and Mm. floods and the one thing I want us to just touch on before we really say goodbye is the confusing picture people here are getting of India even though there's very little picture there's two contrasting ones one is the political story that we don't get in detail but we have a sense of authoritarianism violence the other is the pharmaceutical story where we're we have associations of India as having 
help to produce for the world generic drugs, make them available to poorer countries, um, and is kind of on the side of the angels when it comes to fighting the pandemic and disease. Can you help me make sense of those two things? And will our desire, well, will our desire for drugs make us go easy on Modi? No, I think uh, it is true that uh, not in Modi's time alone, but uh, traditionally that India has been, I mean, certain Indian pharmaceutical companies have been on the side of the angels when it comes to generic drugs and so on. But, uh, you know, what happened in India in the second wave of the pandemic was just uh, unbelievable, you know, and even now, it's a very small percentage of the population that has been fully vaccinated. So India medically is becoming a country where the privatization of medicines and hospitals, the corporatization, uh, medical care is just not available to the Indian poor. Even if it's available globally, it's not available to the Indian poor. You know? And that is what breaks them economically. I want to thank you, Arundhati Roy, for being with us yet again and look forward to the next time that we talk. Thank you for the sense of possibility that you continue to bring us and for continuing to walk outside of the walls of your house to bring back news of uh, resistance. There is resistance here as well, I promise. You can see more coverage of it on our show and uh, we'll continue to do, to do this work with you, I hope. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. What a pleasure it was to talk to you. <laughs> Beautiful.